climate change is an energy debate principally. It's not only that, it's also about adaptation, it's also about water, it's also about political conflict, but it, it's fundamentally about energy. And to properly address global energy needs in a climate change context, we have to think about infrastructure. How do we create the infrastructure to produce and consume energy in a way which is consistent with the need, the imperative, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and allows us to live a good life that looks in some way better than uh, where we've come from. And that's really only possible if there is significant, I mean, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of investment in infrastructure. And we frequently inaccurately or wrongly frame the costs questions. Um, a pet example, my colleagues and I will have heard me say this many times before, a pet example of mine is, is solar power. How many, how many of you have seen the standard chart that shows on a cost per kilowatt hour basis the cost of various energy uh, generation sources and in there is solar PV and it looks really, really expensive. Well, if you insist on comparing a solar panel on your roof to a coal-fired power station and you only analyze it in respect of commodity prices for power, then that looks like a rational comparison. But if you treat the solar PV that you place on your roof as an asset that's part of your home that's going to last 30 years and where there'll be no fuel costs associated with generating the power from light, it's not a rational comparison. You can't put a coal-fired power station on your roof to keep the rain out either, whereas a solar panel can form that function too if you choose the right materials. <laughs> Even something very simple like a cost per kilowatt, hour per kilowatt hour comparison, which is really the cornerstone of much of the analysis of cost in energy, can be very misleading if you frame it wrong. Let me conclude introducing this section with a, um, a phrase which I've taken from my colleague Walt Patterson, who I like to describe as a, a man who has a long history of being right, um, but hasn't made himself wealthy or powerful as a result, he just gets respect, which is that climate change is, is essentially an energy problem. And energy is essentially an infrastructure problem. And if we, if we can hold that in our heads as we have our discussion, we look to how those of you who write about energy talk about infrastructure, we, we, will, we will start to have a more coherent debate about energy. So now, to take that on, uh, the first person I'm going to call on is Ron Oxborough. Uh, Lord Oxborough, who uh, we're very delighted, is uh, sitting with us in our house upstairs in a wonderful room. I like to visit occasionally to see the powerful brains in there. Um, but you probably will remember him as the, recently, uh, the recent chairman of Shell, but he has a long uh, history of working on energy issues in academia and working in public service as well. And uh, Ron is a, a wise man to turn to now. Well, thank you, James. I was asked to do two things, two different things in the five minutes I have today. One was to comment on how I viewed press uh, treatment of 
uh, energy issues, and also to talk about energy futures. Well, I only have one. I could talk a long time about the press, but actually my gripe is mostly with sub-editors, and James has a good example of this, who frequently pick bits out of well-written articles, often irrelevant bits, and get them wrong and give them great prominence, and that's what people remember. The best example of this I can remember was from a publication with which some of you might not be familiar. It's the Laramie Boomerang. Um, (laughs) And you will recall a number of years ago there was a great hoo-ha over the possibility of cold fusion, (coughs) another perpetual motion machine which was going to solve the uh, world's energy problems in perpetuity. It's made experiments done in Utah, the adjacent state to Wyoming. And the headline in the Laramie Boomerang was um, Utah Invention to Destroy Wyoming Economy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, that's a bit extreme, but please do try to get your sub-editors under control. To turn to the other question, I think it's very difficult to recognize a revolution when you're in the middle of it. But that is what I believe we are at the moment. James emphasized all the main points that we have to take into account. And I'm going to talk just a little bit about infrastructure. The infrastructure that we have today has basically grown up over the last 40 to 50 years. And it is an infrastructure which is fundamentally, implicitly um, optimized to energy prices which are extraordinarily low, and indeed natural resources which are cheap. Now, neither of those premises to which that infrastructure is implicitly optimized holds any longer. I believe that the days of cheap energy and cheap natural resources are behind us, particularly as the world population grows. Now, if you look at the elements of that infrastructure, it's quite interesting. They have a a natural turnover period of 40 years or less. It's not true of everything, but it's roundabout that. We change our cars every 15 years. Um, railway, rolling stock, about 30 years. Aircraft, believe it or not, 30 years. An awful lot turns over. Power stations turns over in 30 to 40 years. Now, it happens that that is about the length of time that we have to get emissions under control if we are to avoid the most extreme consequences of climate change. And for that reason, it is extremely important that we recognize this now and, as all sorts of people have pointed out, to simply replace our infrastructure is absurd. We couldn't afford it. But what we can do is, as we replace it, as, we, as it comes up for renewal, as part of the proper renewal cycle, is make sure that we renew it with appropriate facilities for the future. I mean, that is the message that I want to get across, and I think it's the, an important part of this revolution. And we, we have this window of opportunity available to us now, which we miss at our, at our peril. Now, to pick up finally on a couple of points James made, very frequent, we hear a lot of futile argument, to my mind. You know, should we have nuclear? Should we have solar? Should we have this? If you look at the energy demands of the world population as it grows from, what is it, 6.3 billion now to something close to 9 billion um, by 2050, 
We are going to need all the energy we can get from every conceivable source. But the trick is to decouple that energy from carbon emissions. Thank you, James. Thank you, Ron. Now I'm going to pass over to Robert Napier. Uh, Robert is uh, WRUF's leader in the UK and uh, has had a previous life running a PLC. And he and I sit on a couple of boards that are doing work on climate change, the Climate Group and the Carbon Disclosure Project. Good enterprises they are. And Robert's going to introduce his remarks from, from the WWF point of view. Uh, thank you, James. Good morning, everybody. WWF uh, sees climate change as the greatest threat to mankind and to biodiversity. Uh, we see that it's imperative that we hold the increase over pre-industrial levels of world average temperatures to at the most two degrees, we're already at 0.7.8, and that requires that we uh, hold down the uh, greenhouse gas concentration in the atmosphere to around 400. Some people would say 450. The safer side is to say 400 parts per million. We're currently at 383 parts per million. So exactly as Ron says, time is running out. Now, WF is, is looking at this issue exactly as, as James says, trying to stand back and, and see it in, in really in a holistic approach first at a global level, then at a regional level, then at, then at key countries. And you've got to start with, we don't do anything, what's going to happen? The world currently emits seven gigatons of carbon. Business as usual over the next 50 years, that's forecast to rise to about 14 gigatons of carbon. Disaster. If we're going to hold the world temperature increase to below two degrees, that current seven million has to be taken down to around four uh, gigatons of, car of carbon. And uh, we found the, I don't know, those of you who know Rob Sokoloff and his wedges. Uh, I can now bore for Britain on wedges because it's an extremely interesting <laughs> subject. Uh, and it's simply a methodology. Yeah. And a wedge is a gigaton of carbon over 50 years, rising from naught to, to a gigaton over 50 years. But it's a very good way of thinking about how do you drive down the 14 businesses usual down to three or four gigatons. Uh, and we found this uh, very helpful for us to think through as WWF. You know, what's a WWF vision of, of, how we, of the actions required to, to hold world temperatures at that level? And, of course, it immediately gets you to think about separating, as James says, between demand and supply. And it seems to us very straightforward. You start with driving down uh, demand. And uh, the work we've done so far suggests there are many gigatons of carbon you can take uh, by driving down demand, uh, aiming at efficiency, efficiency in our homes, energy efficiency in our homes, in industry and in cars. Exactly as Ron says, the capital turnover is also an important <coughs> issue in terms of energy demand. How, is, how you build your houses, the danger of locking in the carbon footprint for the next 40 years or so, but cars, as Ron said, is 14 years. The industry, very important element of in, in, in industry efficiency, uh, probably capital turnover about 14 years. And if industry would only assume a higher price of carbon and a higher price of energy in the future, they're more likely to make the investment now in replacing uh, inefficient energy use today. So if you could, we start on our wedges, but if you imagine that's the 14 gigatons, you can drive that down, we think, at least by four gigatons over that period uh, on efficiency criteria. You then say, well, how are we going to supply the rest? And that, of course, is where it gets interesting and challenging. And we've set, from a WF perspective, various criteria on that. It's clearly all driven by trying to decarbonize. But from us, an important criteria, of course, is, is biodiversity and the impact of various energy supplies on biodiversity, for example, uh, uh, biofuels, 
uh, the impact of the oil and gas sector if we need more oil and gas and where that's going to come from and so on. But we combine that with all the obvious other criteria of security, of acceptability, of cost and of implementa implementability. Uh, and we see that you can build up uh, the, the 8 or 10 gigatons you're trying to decarbonize. There's probably going to have to be a dash for gas, but you'll then probably you'll then take the carbon out by carbon capture and storage. There's plenty of opportunity, again, on a higher price assumption for carbon and energy in renewables, today's renewables, and that gives you then time to put in tomorrow's renewables, uh, which would then, then be cost-efficient. The absolute key, as Ron says, is... Every tonne of carbon, and I don't know why these lights are on, it's a complete waste of electricity and of carbon emissions. Um, uh, they, please turn them off. Uh, uh, but you know, that, that is now carbon in the atmosphere, which we're never going to get back. And every minute, every day we waste and burn carbon is just time wasted. So there's a real sense of urgency required here. Uh, and I think that's... Uh, I'd then like to turn to the media, uh, not looking at David in particular, uh, but it seems to us that the role they have is so important and currently, they're not getting it right, in my view. Just the big, there was a little glimmer of hope yesterday. There was an excellent article, I'm not just being nice to the Financial Times, by Martin Wolf in the FT yesterday, which was the first really decent sort of overview of, of global energy. And he's going to write some more articles in the future, and I'm sure David will comment them in his leader articles uh, as well. Because you very rarely see this total holistic approach uh, to the problem. And all you get is, I'm afraid, quite a lot of confusion People get confused, and the Prime Minister, frankly, plays on this confusion about energy versus electricity. You'd think nukes supplied everything. Nukes actually supply 6% of our energy requirements in this country. You would think that uh, a gas you know, is so insecure, and if we turn off the gas supply, we need to build nuclear power stations. The truth is that more gas is used in our homes, which nukes can't supply, uh, than is used uh, in power stations. So there's a lot of misinformation uh, going on out there. And I would just put to the media uh, the challenge to them. Firstly, I think there needs to be a standing back approach to really see at the global level, regional and then country level, uh, how do we manage the demand side and then how do we decarbonize supply. A more rigorous analysis of all of that. And there are trade-offs and people will come to different views and that's fine. Then we can have a, a debate. But let's at least make it an informed debate uh, based on, on, on the facts as, as they are known. Uh, and finally, the press have a huge role to play in the behavioural change that's going to be required. Because if we are going to move, and we have to move, to a decarbonised economy, we all have to move to a decarbonised way of life, not hair shirt, but finding solutions and ways of living that drastically reduce our carbon footprint. That can either be done by carrot and stick, uh, which tends to, uh, the stick tends to be painful and the carrot tends to be sometimes rather indigestible, or it can be done because people actually get the message and are actually motivated themselves to do the right thing. And I think the press and the, and the, the tenor the press set on these issues, which is don't frighten the horses or just go down to the pub and have another drink. You've actually got to take them to the right answer uh, in a way that, they, that is actually uh, uh, personally uh, uh, motivating. So I actually believe that there's a huge gap at the moment uh, in the media coverage of these issues, uh, and I think there's a, a great opportunity for them to, to the media to pick up and drive these agenda items and put forward some of the difficult choices and trade-offs, but in a way that recognises the ultimate objective is to fundamentally decarbonise the economy. Well, now we're going to turn to a representative of Her Majesty's civil service. Uh, Bill is a director general at DEFRA. Uh, has overarching responsibility 
for uh, the environmental aspects of both the climate change issue and, and energy issue. And uh, your, the floor is yours, Bill. Thanks. Uh, we are, of course, in the middle of um, an energy review, um, but I'm not going to talk about that. I guess, um, I guess one or two of you in this room read The Guardian, and um, you'll have seen um, uh, Alistair Darling's interview yesterday on the, on the review, and I don't think I could add much to that, uh, except to say that um, I think some of the poor framing issues that uh, James were talking about, I hope we'll avoid that in the energy review, which will be genuinely... Um, comprehensive. It's not just about nuclear. It will be looking at um, the demand side, very very much so. It will be looking at um, the arguments about renewables, um, combined heat and power, and so on. So um, a treat to come, but um, not a lot more I can say about that at the moment. I, I wanted to, in a way, pick up on what, um, what Robert was talking about on, um, on behavioral change, because Yes, uh, dealing with climate change uh, and energy policy is an infrastructure problem, but it is also very much a problem about how um, people behave in their daily lives, in their, in their lifestyles. And I'm focusing here on the UK, though, um, as, as uh, James said at the beginning, this is a global issue. And just a few um, findings from some very recent uh, public opinion tracking that we've been doing. Around 50% of people who responded to that said that uh, they thought climate change was the aspect of the environment they were most concerned about. And 33% of them were very concerned about climate change. More women, um, and interestingly, more people over 55. The, the, group, the age group that was least concerned about climate change was the young. I think that's slightly uh, counterintuitive um, uh, when you hear a lot of the debate. Um, about uh, 40% of people said that they thought the UK was already affected by climate change. And a quite high 70% thought that their lifestyle had an impact. Um, but of those, uh, nevertheless, 40% thought there was little that they could do. An interesting, um, slightly uh, contradictory finding, perhaps. Nearly 90% of people said they made conscious efforts to save energy... Um, a lot would welcome more information about how they go about that. Uh, but about 30% said that energy issues were not as important as they, as they might be led to believe. And um, a remarkable 25% um, thought that the government was doing enough to tackle the issue. Um, of course, means that 75% thought that we weren't doing enough. Um, we, we don't have any comparable previous data on that, nor, nor do we have um, comparisons with other uh, developed countries. But I, I think that, um, uh, sort of anecdotally, if you like, I'd say a number of things about media coverage of, um, of climate change and the way that has fed into these findings, because I suspect that if you had asked those questions a couple of years ago, you would not have had nearly the same recognition that climate change is a serious issue. Um, uh, and probably not either the same level of recognition that um, uh, individuals had something that they could um, contribute to dealing with the problem. I, I do think that it has shot up the media agenda over the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, it, climate change has now become a, a front-page issue which interests political correspondents as well as uh, those uh, strange environmental correspondents who might get um, 
half a page in the middle of the um, uh, broadsheet uh, papers. Um, and I, I think that in this country, um, without sort of blowing our own trumpet, we can say that the fact that uh, through the last year we made climate change one of the big topics of our EU and G8 uh, presidencies. We had a series of events during the year on the uh, science of climate change and so on. I, I think that has helped. Um, Hurricane Katrina certainly helped. And there is clearly a political effect with um, more competition in British politics now on environment policy than I can remember for a decade or more. Um, and uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt that does um, affect the way both of the media take an interest. It also affects um, uh, the way that um, the government thinks about it. <clears throat> um, another interesting feature, I think, is that there's probably been less space given to the contrarians, to the deniers of, uh, of the climate change as an issue, than was the case um, three, four years ago. Um, and so perhaps a bit less confusion about whether climate change is happening, still a good deal of confusion about why and what I can do about it. And, of course, it becomes then, a, uh, because it's become more political, it becomes a new stick to beat the government with. Um, uh, we're not meeting our targets, our, our self-imposed um, target of uh, a 20% reduction in carbon by, by 2010. Um, on the other hand, um, we were criticised recently when the first-year figures on the uh, emission trading scheme came out that uh, only Britain was taking this seriously and uh, this was harming uh, competitiveness in, in UK industry. So, um, as usual... Um, uh, we get it both ways. And uh, the nuclear debate becomes a kind of new stick with which to beat the Prime Minister. Um, we, uh, <clears throat> he's already decided exactly what he wants from the review. If he gets it, then uh, it will be a foregone conclusion. If something goes wrong, then uh, um, it will be uh, uh, him to blame. <clears throat> um, so I think we've had a lot more interest um, we've got a lot of public interest, but what we're not yet getting is real changes in behaviour that will um, have, a, have an impact. And uh, um, I think I'd sort of throw out a question as to how we can use the whole range of media, not just the written media, not just the uh, broadcast media, but also the internet and so on, um, to get over the message about um, uh, what, what individuals can do to tackle climate change, which seems such a huge problem. Um, how we in government then can provide packages of activity, of uh, measures, of regulation, uh, incentives, disincentives that go with those sorts of messages, and how we can then affect those lifestyle choices without, as uh, Robert said, being hair-shirted about it, um, but providing good information and um, incentives to, to act. We'll now turn to, to David from, from the FT. You've already got plaudits this morning. Uh, certainly the FT has consistently covered this issue and the environment and business issue for, for many, many years, very authoritatively. David, what's, what's your view? Uh, well, I'm, I'm always jealous of my colleague, um, uh, Martin Wolfe, because he has a named column and a picture and his byline <laughs> and everything, so you just stoked my jealousy. Um, I'll, I'll um, uh, focus basically on, uh, on the FT's evolution um, uh, its evolving position on energy. I'll focus on the UK because there's a big debate here. We are on the, in this current debate, we're on the sort of pro-nuclear side, not the sort of, so you'd have to put us in um, 
sort of contradistinction to, say, The Guardian and, and certainly The Independent. Um, papers, of course, which have done a fantastic amount, particularly The Independent, which has a sort of campaigning style to sort of raise awareness of climate change and tri- tribute to them as a campaigning paper on that. So I'll focus more on the sort of... on I, I write these anonymous, boring, anonymous editorials. Um, Mar- Martin uh, is a strong influence on the paper, but he has, um, he has views that range everywhere and uh, sometimes outside our editorial position. <laughs> um, and, of course, we are... We are um, we, you know, we have an op-ed uh, page and we're open to, um, to um, you know... We're, we're, Catholic Church and open to, to other views um, expressed. Anyway, for, for us, the, um, it, and I think it's a little bit like the, the, the Blair government at the, uh, the moment, um, the, the difficulty is um, not to be too pompous about a newspaper because, you know, frankly, we're not going to change much. It's far more important for a government. But we, we have the same sort of struggle, I think, to combine free market principles with... Um, support for renewables and nuclear, um, that which uh, I think, frankly, cannot totally compete um, without, um, uh, without some kind of prop yeah, in a free market. So that's the, that's the sort of central difficulty for us. Now, we, we have been a... Um, uh, of course, in the old days, things like you know fossil fuels and nuclear were never really in opposition. We were enthusiastic, uh, enthusiastically reported about the North Sea's development and nuclear power in Britain. And uh, we used to be actually more of a nuclear newspaper in the um, in the sort of 70s and 80s when Walter Marshall ran the Central Electricity Generating Board, and um, we were perhaps a little bit too close, too uncritical. We now take a rather more cold-eyed view uh, of, um, of nuclear power uh, to, say, to, to say that we think it makes sense, but it's certainly not a no-brainer. Um, Liberalisation, uh, which was something that we as a newspaper welcomed um, in, uh, in energy, as in aviation, te- telecoms and other things, um, when it came to Britain, we, as, a, as you'd expect, a sort of free market paper, uh, welcomed it. But I think we do recognise that it's had, it's had posed problems in the, um, uh, in the way that it's been pushed sort of um, pretty far in the British context. And it poses problems for renewables in terms of um, the... Um, it's pushed prices down, it's perhaps created more volatility in prices. And for nuclear... I think there's, that's also a problem for um, nuclear. It, it, there's been a bias towards sh- short-term spot trading and away from long-term contracts. And also the very nature of deregulation, which means that, um, that uh, anyone can come in and take your customers, is a, is a, poses a problem for something like nuclear power, which wants to um, I- ideally, uh, in an ideal underegulated world, regulated world, would just have captive customers for decade after decade and be able to pass its costs through uh, uh, onto them. So, so liberalisation does pose, pose a problem, and one interesting question for, for us as a newspaper, and I think for a lot of people, will be whether this, this energy review, which we expect to be um, uh, pro-nuclear as well as pro um, 
renewable, how far much of a retreat there will have to be from liberalisation. Now, the, the, the new factors that are sort of pushing the debate in Britain, one is energy security. Uh, we take that uh, <clears throat> um, seriously. We're not, a, we're, not a, uh, we're not a xenophobic newspaper. We're the most international of British newspapers publishing in more or less every continent. But um, we do recognize that, and indeed we, uh, um, we recognize it's a, it is a problem because for the future you're going to see, in terms of fossil fuels, a, uh, they'll, be, they'll be imported from a smaller number of countries coming across you know, greater distances in the world. So, and questions of some, the reliability of some of the suppliers perhaps the Russians, though I don't think um, one should stoke too much Russia-phobia on this score, is, is, you know, there's a question there. And on climate change, we, we <clears throat> totally accept and, um, as a newspaper and applaud the, the, um, the, um, the stand that some of the fossil fuel um, uh, companies, you know, the, the Shells, the BPs, the shift that they have made, um, leading the way really in their, in their industry towards taking that seriously. So like the um, trying to marry these, <coughs> these, these um, considerations, okay, one minute, right, okay. Um, the, uh, we've lept, like, like the government, we've leapt on the um, European trading system to try and uh, harness the market to support um, uh, uh, renewable, well, low-carbon or zero-carbon energy sources, i.e. renewables and nuclear. Problem is, um, as we all know, it's not working properly. It's a cap-and-trade system, but, um, you know, there's, the cap should be include cuts in permits, and there's been no real cap. So it's not working properly. We, we definitely need that, um, <clears throat> that uh, carbon, uh, carbon price um, as a, as a, um, to drive efficiency and also innovation. Uh, whether um, uh, that'll be enough of incentive is a good question. Um, and at the moment, um, it's quite clear that the Kyoto system is too short-term, certainly for nuclear. It ends in um, uh, 2012, and we're only talking about these new reactors possibly being built in the middle of the next decade, So uh, the first ones. So something has to be done to... Um, to stabilize and extend. And, Robert, you were talking about, you know, wouldn't it be nice if people assumed a higher uh, carbon price or, indeed, I would add, a longer-term carbon price, and then they'd start investing. But, unfortunately, they're not. And uh, <clears throat> perhaps there are ways that, um, that companies like um, uh, Climate Change Capital can, can um, innovations that you can produce and think up uh, in terms of hedging mechanisms, you know, creating a carbon futures longer term, or use the climate change levy as a sort of additional uh, British mechanism to add on, to stabilise and to extend the, the carbon system. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Lots of things I'd like to respond to. I've got a long list of observations on what has been said, but you've been listening. Now's a chance to to come in and ask questions. My name's Truen Restrick. I'm the director of a charity called Global Action Plan. I just wanted to pick up on two of the themes. The first one was infrastructure. I was in discussions with a very large uh, oil company two weeks ago, 
who were looking at the massive projected growth in worldwide energy and were considering about how they were going to make investments to meet that growth. Their view was they were an engineering company. Their job was to meet the demand as they projected it, not to try and look at carbon emissions or to, to reduce demand at all. So if we need this, this massive change in infrastructure, which I think everybody clearly knows we do, how, is, how do we get companies such as that to see their role as, as really corporate citizens to take a lead on changing the, the way that we supply the energy rather than just meeting what everybody knows will be a massive growth in demand. That's the first point. Second point was on behaviour change. Um, that's what the charity I, I set up does. It encourages people to change behaviour. I think expecting the media to be able to change people's beh everyday behaviour is a bit of a, a sort of optimistic hope. Um, climate change is a massive abstract issue. People can't get to grips with it. They can't see how their small changes in their lifestyles will have an impact on such a global issue. There are different ways to communicate it. I'll give a very quick example. We have an energy bike, which is like a gymnasium bike, which people pedal, and, and, and they pedal different electrical appliances. They can physically feel how much more energy an inefficient light bulb uses than an efficient light bulb. They can physically see how much energy they use when they leave their computer screen on over lunchtime and it makes them change their behaviour. There are other, better ways to get the message about climate change across rather than hoping the media can say, thou shalt do this or you should do that because people don't respond to that, that sort of talking head approach. Clive Bates, Head of Environmental Policy at the Environment Agency. Um, I really wanted to follow up um, David's uh, point there about um, price signals for carbon. I mean, what's been set before us is the idea that the uh, energy using and supply infrastructure essentially needs to turn over and be re rehabilitated over the next 40 years and look very different at the end of it. What is going to cause that to happen? How, um, I think, James, you're famously quoted for saying the signals need to be long, loud and legal. And of course, I agree with that. But how long, how loud and how legal? What exactly do these instruments look like? On the one hand, you could have a statement of intent about the future of the emissions trading system. That would be at the soft end of the spectrum. At the other end, you could go to the government auctioning contracts for carbon reduction in 2030. And that would be at the very hard end of the price signal spectrum. For people who are putting money down into this infrastructure, what do these signals need to look like? My name is Ethna Trainer. I'm an associate with City Savvy Media. Just following on from what David said, and indeed from this last comment here, um, he's the only one of you who mentioned Kyoto at all, and um, I would sort of personally say it is the, the grand compromise. It's very much that there is now a very acceptable level of pollutants in the world, and I think that's where we start from, and how do we distribute that among countries, and how is the emissions trading scheme sort of playing into that? Has it been successful? Is it the only thing we've got? Is it that if you cut back a bit here in the UK, that therefore, or rather if we cut back in China or in some remote area, therefore you can continue to pollute just as much as you're polluting today? I don't know if it's a very fair scheme, and I don't know actually if there's enough education about it. That's the other comment I want to make. Pick what you'd like to respond to, Bill. I know some things you'll, you'll be inhibited about, but mostly you'll be free. Go ahead. Okay, just a, a couple of um, points then in response. Firstly, um, I, I certainly don't think we can rely on the media to uh, change behaviour. If I gave that impression, then, then that was wrong. Um, 
uh, I think all the all the work we've done on uh, on behaviour of individuals shows that you need a whole range of measures all pointing in the same direction, uh, whether it's um, uh, fiscal incentives, disincentives, um, regulation, driving certain products off the market so that people don't have the choice of uh, using um, energy-inefficient um, products, and exhortation, and importantly, advice. So I think there's a whole range of things that we need to um, have all pointing in the same direction. Um, secondly, on Kyoto and, and the emissions trading scheme, um, I really do think it's too early to say whether the emissions trading scheme is, is a success or not. In, in some respects, it's been a real success. It has, uh, it's got up and running pretty much on time in a wide range of uh, member states of the European Union, some with uh, real capacity, others not. Um, and it has created a price in the market, a price that has fluctuated fairly uh, dramatically, but um, uh, that's after only a year. So I think, I think we've got to give it a bit of time. Um, and the associated mechanisms for investing in developing countries, the clean development mechanism, etc., are even more um, embryonic at this stage. So I think it is too early to say, but I think it's here to say. And, and um, um, uh, David's point that the scheme runs out in 2012 is only partly true, um, Actually, the scheme will continue unless it is stopped um, uh, by a, a qualified majority vote in, in the European Union. So yes, there, there will be a scheme after really 2012. Point for people to grasp that there isn't an end. Uh, there is, the Kyoto Protocol has a compliance period. That instrument has a compliance period, 2008-2012, but it sits within a framework convention that will continue to meet and will continue to produce new agreements. And speaking as someone who negotiated both, I know for sure that that system is designed to live longer than 2012. There isn't any doubt at all that there will be a regime dealing with climate after 2012 and that there will be some form of price signal for carbon. What we don't know is whether it's the same one that we've got now. There's also no end to the EU emissions trading scheme. That doesn't have an end date. And we also know that the EU emissions trading scheme does not have to depend upon the Kyoto Protocol for its existence. It's linked, but it lives independently. And unless governments choose by a very elaborate process to terminate the legal authority for the EU ETS, it will carry on beyond 2012. Yes, go ahead. Brian, come in. Brian Count with Climate Change, XRWE and Energy. I mean, that's a key point. Uh, it's all very well to say it will continue, but what are the rules? And the problem is everybody's talked about great policy ideas. We had a white paper two or th three years ago which gave good old conflicting objectives. What's, what's, uh, why is it going to change this time on the energy review? As an investor, you need to know what the rules are and how it's going to work. Now, what's happened in Germany is they're going to build new lignite with no carbon capture because they get 18 years of free carbon credit. Now, that's against climate change, but they know the rules. And in this country, we do not have a clear idea of what the government's going to do. And unless the government stabilizes carbon prices, there will be no investment. Bill? He could come back to you and right now, all the best. 
Well, I, I, I actually think there were quite a number of unfair points in that, uh, in that question. Um, I, I don't think that the Energy White Paper's um, uh, objectives were conflicting. Um, there is no conflict between looking at um, security of supply and looking at uh, climate change issues. I think we were giving pretty clear signals. Now, let's see what the Energy Review says. The, the issue of a long-term carbon price is one that is being hotly debated in, in terms of the Energy Review, as you'll, you'll have seen from uh, Alistair Darling's um, article yesterday. Um, and it's something that we clearly do have to try to provide. But... At the European level, we have to negotiate that. There's a review of the ETS going on at the moment, um, and uh, our aim, um, we have been pressing this, I think, more strongly than any other member state, is to get um, that longer-term certainty about not just that there will be a scheme, but what the, what the rules of the game will be post-2012. That is a top aim of our, our policy at the moment. Um. Well, to pick up the question of how do you get the attention of big companies, big engineering companies, or what have you, the answer is by making it expensive to emit carbon. And then, you know, it will immediately hit their bottom line, and they will start taking it into account. Now, this then gets into the broader question, which we've been touching on for a number of, from a number of sides. Um, we have to find a way, uh, a comprehensive way, of making it expensive to emit. Um, you know, that is in fact, a, could be a subject for the whole, the whole morning um, in itself because there are a variety of regulatory incentive, regulatory measures, incentive measures, taxation measures, what have you that you could use to make up this package. But I would simply say of the carbon, of the emission trading scheme, really the same thing as I would say about Kyoto. Uh, the naysayers tend to regard both as a disaster and a failure. I think this is totally the wrong approach. Both represent, um, I think, very brave first steps and really rather successful first steps to tackle extraordinarily difficult problems. There have been learning serious learning opportunities in both and certainly on the emission trading scheme uh, everyone says well, it's pathetic, it's weak people haven't played by the rules yeah, that is to a degree true but this learning period will, I am sure be, be followed by a very much more satisfactory and comprehensive scheme which really does the job properly but you couldn't have set that in place straight away the Various mechanisms had to be there. The protocols uh, had to be there. Now these have been tried out for a little time. They can be made to, made to work in the next phase. Robert. Uh, I just want to pick up the business <coughs> theme. A few weeks ago I debated in a forum like this with Digby Jones, uh, these sorts of issues, and I think the view of the audience afterwards, I lost the short-term argument and won the long-term argument. Uh, and the serious point I was trying to get across uh, uh, to Digby was that uh, it actually comes down to the discount rate that companies apply to the future. And one of the problems is uh, that most uh, large company chief executives survive for 4.3 years, I think it is. You did uh, longer. I got 6.4, so <laughs> I'm not a part of that fact. Uh, and uh, therefore, you know, they hope that you know, the music's not going to stop on their watch. Uh, and I really believe so strongly that it's the role of the boards of companies to be thinking longer term and to recognise the discount rate in the future, they should be discounting at a rather lower rate than they, the management uh, tend to do. And if you do that, you then recognise that you turn this from being 
the sort of problems of, uh, that Digby Jones sees, oh, you're bashing my metal bashers in Birmingham again, uh, and actually turn it around to being the opportunity. And my answer to the question about the supplier of the capital equipment is that they're a dinosaur whose business will die, because if they don't recognize that their future lies in the new technologies and not in the old technologies, they certainly are applying too high a discount rate to the future. Uh, so I think a lot of this is it's, there's no silver bullet. Uh, and as I was trying to say before, we don't want to present this as a problem. Where at all possible, you present it as the opportunity. And certainly to the business world, it should be the opportunity. But you've got to combine that with the role of government in setting the rules and regulations, putting in the right incentives, removing the wrong disincentives, of which there are plenty. And that comes down, in the short term at least, to the emissions trading scheme. I agree with all the comments Ron has made. In essence, it's a good mechanism. It's gone through some difficult uh, uh, teething problems. But it's not helped by, frankly, arms of government. Bill's department has been doing a great job trying to, as David said, the ETS is like a game of musical chairs. You've got to remove chairs. Uh, and, you know, and it was outrageous, absolutely outrageous, that, that, that the DTI, you know, who, who listened to the dinosaurs and the CBI, frankly, uh, applying too high a discount rate to the future, were actually proposing a cap on the next round above the current cap. That is simply outrageous. And if a major part of government is thinking that way, there really is no hope. It's great to Defra's uh, credit that you've been arguing the other way to, to push the cap down, remove some chairs, and I hope when the energy review comes out and, and the ETS stuff comes out, uh, you've won the argument. If you haven't, I despair about this government. David. I think the first question, uh, um, your first point was, should oil companies just um, go ahead and um, just plan to meet whatever demand arises? Was that it? The, yeah. I've just... Um, in a way, in a funny way, there's a, a hopeful note on this with the, the largest oil company, um, in the, or hopeful for the climate, uh, not very hopeful for petrol prices, but the largest company, um, Saudi Aramco, um, has it, or the Saudi, Saudis um, have said that um, they have uh, no real plans to, their production I think is about 9 or 10 million barrels a day now. They have no plans for the medium term uh, to go beyond 15 million barrels a day. That actually um, rather sort of changes the oil balance because at the moment what happens, the, the International Energy Agency and certainly the Americans, the Department of Energy, they produce these sort of oil balances and um, they, um, uh, they, they look at demand and then they, they, you know, they add up supply and they must match. They want them to match. And, in fact, they don't match. So what they, uh, realistically, so what they do always with, is with Saudi Arabia, they simply assume that Saudi Arabia will fill the gap. And they've been assuming that the Saudis will produce up to anything like 23 or 24 million barrels a day. And the Saudis are saying, actually, we, for long-term reasons, we're just not going to do it. So there is a, um, that's, Perhaps that's not the sort of oil company you had in mind, Saudi Aramco, but that's an oil company which, for completely different reasons, uh, is saying, actually, uh, we're not um, going to meet all the expectations of the world. Um, very briefly here, let me come back in. Ethna Trainer here again, and I have to disclose um, that I do occasional work with OPEC, so I might be able to shed a little light 
on some of this. And one of the things I think we have to also keep in mind about the oil-producing countries is the fact that they're in it for the long term as well. They've got governments to run, they've got people to look after. So they're not out there trying to pull out all the oil out of the ground at the moment. And they are, if you listen to the tone in the last year or so, talking about a diversification of energy. And they realize that there will be a lot of different modes of energy. And they're saying too, only a few weeks ago, Dr. Daukuro, the OPEC president, actually talked about there will be a role for oil. And there is, at the moment, a role for it. Probably an awful lot of people drove here today. And that will continue. But um, at the expense of investing in the oil industry, they don't want to see overinvestment, of course, in too much alternative. But they accept it's going on. And they do accept the fact that they've got to keep some of that oil in the ground for the future of their economies. I have a short observation on that point particularly. Uh, we know from work we've done in the Gulf that Abu Dhabi in particular has released a, a very interesting new program of activity called Al Mazdar. And that is designed to hold on to their current 2% share of global energy. It's a truly remarkable idea when you know how small Abu Dhabi is. But 2% of global energy is what they produce. But they know that that isn't going to come from oil in the future. They want to hold on to 2%, but it isn't going to be from oil. It's going to be from gas and from alternatives. So that's, I can endorse that. Can, I, can we leave it there? Can we give it there? And I've got some other observations because, as you probably appreciate, these questions, all of them, go to our everyday business. This is what we do every day. And uh, we, have, we have views, we have experience that, that we can bring to bear. Just let me briefly summarise some of them. Clearly, we have a business that is focused exclusively on the price for carbon, on managing uh, an intervention in that market for profit. And there is no market unless some of the chairs are taken away. That market is, is a global market, but it's, it's more than one. There are markets, markets that are connected. There's a Kyoto market and there's an EU ETS market, and there may well in due course be a Japanese one, and there might, if they get over their political problems, be a Canadian one, and there might be a Californian one, and, and so on. So the, the, that market is a very good example, and it is really a bold policy initiative that needs congratulation of how one can align public and private interest so that every single investment we make, all the money that we raise here in London in the greatest capital market in the world, that we invest in the carbon market, every single penny reduces greenhouse gases. Now, whether we make a return for our investors on that depends on our skill and working the differences between the effort we put into making that reduction on behalf of someone who needs to satisfy an obligation in Europe. So you have a very neat calibration of legal obligations, long-term legal obligations, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that create a trading opportunity between the two. There's no value in the market without reductions being achieved. Nobody gets paid any money unless reductions are physically verified. The entire system, and it's difficult to establish, highly complex, is working. But it doesn't have length to it yet. The rules, as Brian says, are not known far enough in advance. So we are working on how to create financial products that distribute risk. We have to ha heavily discount post-2012, but we still buy post-2012 right? because we've got option value. We believe there's going to be a post-2012 regime. We will buy, for example, emission reductions in the US 
even though they've got no scheme at the moment, choosing very carefully because we think there's still value in doing that. We're going through a capital raising at the moment and it's very interesting to see how much more money is coming into the market and where it's coming from. Last year when we raised capital, it was principally from high risk takers, hedge funds and fund of funds. This year is a different profile. There are corporations who are going to be exposed to the carbon price themselves. They've got a natural position. There are pension fund funds that are looking to put substantial amounts of money in the marketplace. And the market's already getting mature from the point of view of the investor. And this is a new force in the debate. Hasn't been there in the past. When Digby Jones makes his ridiculous comment that he did last year about how UK PLC is going to suffer for 40 years as a result of a very weak carbon price, there isn't a counter voice coming from the investment community saying, don't be silly. And there isn't a counter voice saying, is the financial services industry not rather more substantial than, bless them, the panel bashes in Birmingham? So we, we have a tremendous opportunity here in London, in the UK, in a big capital market, to be the providers of capital to a huge global enterprise to reduce greenhouse gas emissions where we can return a profit to investors by delivering a public good. And when our colleagues go out there, as they do, to negotiate these contracts, there are very interesting new human interactions taking place. The, the human element is very striking. There are people who are coming here from all over the world to work with us, who are going out and negotiating with hard hat plant managers 400 kilometers outside Beijing, paying them not to pollute in ways that their government could not require them to do, well, they could, but they're not going to, not right now. They're paying them not to pollute, negotiating a contract where the terms of the Kyoto Protocol have got to be explained and understood, often in English, subject to English law. It's remarkable, this, this new carbon commerce environment. One other observation. One, the, apart from legal intervention by governments collectively, I mean, at every level, global, regional, national, local, what works on the mind of the commercial decision maker? Well, law is one, peer group, compensation, who owns the company, shareholders. All of those elements need to be worked. One of my other enterprises, the Carbon Disclosure Project, is particularly concerned with how large institutional investors relate to the corporations, perhaps the one that you're referring to. One of the things we've, we've got to do in the next phase of that process is to understand better how the way senior executives are compensated can be connected to the initiatives that raise shareholder awareness, that um, establish a peer group. The climate group is also very good at showing off a peer group. Oh, look, well, that's what they're doing. Well, we should do. Why can't we do that? And that's another area where I think further work would be fruitful, aligning senior executive compensation with the achievement of uh, greenhouse gas reductions or a more rational way of using energy. More questions now? Yes. Three in the front. One, two, three. Uh, thank you. Uh, Matthew Davis from uh, WWF. Um, it's, a, it's a point that Bill made about it's the younger generation, the younger people perhaps that aren't picking up on the climate change messages or the urgency and significance of climate change. You said it's counterintuitive. I think it's potentially disastrous if we're not going to reach the next generation and we're not reaching them. The patterns of behaviour are going to be set that are going to be even harder to change. I'm just wondering what the panel think about that, what we could do about that, 
one of the issues I think talking about the media is that WF's um, equally culpable. We tend to talk about the sort of serious media, the broad broadsheet media. We don't talk about the red talks. We don't talk about new media. Delighted this is going to be podcast, but it's a small step in a direction we need to take. So I'd be very interested to have your comments. Excellent. Does anyone, Bill, do you want to respond to that or, or any of the others? Well, I have a, a sort of unsub unsubstantiated theory, <coughs> except from watching my own um, um, once teenage children, that... Um, uh, small children actually have got the message very strongly. They're taught it in schools. Um, my, my sister's a geography teacher. She teaches climate change to small kids, um, and they really get the message. They forget at about 15, but they forget a lot of things at about 15, and they've got other things on their minds. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I don't know that we should take it quite you know, particularly tragically that uh, the 15 to 24-year-olds are irresponsible in all kinds of ways, so why not irresponsible about the climate? Perhaps that's a bit, bit flippant, but... Um, I, you know, I think, I think there is a lot going on in the education system. The uh, Department for Education have been really looking at ways of, um, of uh, helping with this, these messages. Um, and uh, going back to the earlier point, the media do have a role to play, I think. Um, and I'm quite encouraged, as I implied in what I said earlier, that um, uh, the messages coming through from the media are m less mixed than they were. Um, they are more... Uh, in a way, um, sort of alarmist and catastrophist, perhaps, um, but um, uh, they are not sort of giving off quite such confusing signals to to the public as as they might have been a couple of years ago. And that and that um, background noise, I think, is quite important in in then helping us to get over these messages in in other ways and changing behaviour in other ways. I think it's a very strong. We'll go to the other questions in a minute. It's a very strong point. We here have joined a group of others to try and figure out the answer to that, not because it's of immediate interest to our business, but it's obviously a longer-term benefit if we can have a much higher level of awareness coupled very, very closely to what can be done, and has to be put very simply, and communicated by a different set of messengers. So maybe that's something we want to talk about afterwards. It's a bit premature for me to tell you any more than that, other than there's more than one idea circulating around that particular problem at the moment that looks quite encouraging. Research. Nigel Middlemiss, Echo Research, we're a reputation analysis company and we look at um, the newspapers, uh, the radio and, and stakeholder groups to see um, how they perceive uh, reputations and one of the reputational areas we've observed over the past 10 years is that of the discrete forms of energy including nuclear and we've noted how... Um, uh, Ten years ago, there were 20% of the population overall were supportive of nuclear, a small percentage. Uh, today we see 55 to, depending on which poll you believe, 65 to 70 are supportive within the specific context of climate change and the threat of global warming. Um, and The Sun, for example, has come out... Um, and whatever one may think of the sun, it's read by a lot of people, has come out uh, supportively of nuclear in the past uh, six months or so. So my question is, uh, in terms of the provision of capital for the public good, to um, take James's point, how um, might a framework for um, a nuclear market, a nuclear-friendly market, be set? Thank you. Okay, that's quite a big question. I might just take that and deal with it, and then I'll come back to the two here. Who would like to start with that? Ron, would you, you've, 
You know about these systemic nuclear questions, and then I'm sure Robert will have views, and indeed Brian might want to come in. I mean, if one forgets the emotive aspects of nuclear and simply looks at the financial for a moment, what distinguishes nuclear from almost all the other energy sources, apart from wind, in fact, is that all your, all your expense is up front. Um, you've got a small amount of operation and maintenance, small amount, but you pay for your fuel up front. And so once you've built a nuclear plant, your costs and your prices, to a significant extent, really are fixed for the life, for the life of that plant. Um, at the other extreme, you obviously uh, – well, e- you have a gas where you can build the same generating capacity for about a quarter of the cost, but you are – really hostage to the variation of world um, gas prices. And the important thing, I suppose, and I was talking to Brian Count about this particular exact question before he came in, the appropriate way of handling this is presumably, if you're going to have a nuclear element, for a large company to, in fact, have a mixed portfolio. And you have some elements which, in fact, maintain. Um, You know are going to give you a fixed cost throughout the life of the investment. And you have others which expose you to different degrees, to the gas market, the oil market, or what have you. Robert. I mean, just trying to address the the nuclear question. Going back to my wedges, uh, nuclear is a potential wedge. Uh, what we're trying to do, and it's, it's work in progress, we're l- looking at it globally, and we'll then have to validate it regionally and c- country-wise. But our first cut uh, is that as you rank the wedges by the cost, by their acceptability, by their environmental risk, on these criteria, not being unemotional, just trying to be uh, reasonably objective about it, we rank nuclears as the least desirable of the wedges. We then say, are there enough other wedges that we can solve the climate problem, which I was talking about before, uh, and you use the wedges in decreasing order of of acceptability. And our first cut is there is a way through globally where we don't think you actually do need new nuclear plants. Uh, That's our first cut. We need to do more more work to validate that, particularly at a regional level, particularly in some of the, the BRIC countries, to ensure that's the case. Because otherwise we will face the very difficult judgment, you know, which is worse, frying through climate change or, or the serious risk of, uh, particularly in, in terms of waste disposal from nuclear. But our first analysis is you, the, the, the world can get there on the climate change question uh, without needing nuclear. And that is our current position, but we, we've approached the matter in an open, open-minded way and not in a sort of emotional way. Um, we've got... Now, lots of questions coming in in very short of time. Um, can I take, can be very brief the back on this, and maybe Nikki as well on this topic, and then I'll come to you, and then that'll be it. I think we'll, get, we'll try and get the nuclear to issue. Two things need to happen from government. First of all, we need to license on a strategic basis the reactors. It's absurd that the French can build a re- reactor near London on the EPR design, and we can't do it somewhere else, and we have enormous costs. That's why we've got AGRs, which don't perform very well. Second issue is the government has got to take the back-end liability. They can price it commercially, but they have to take that risk, and I believe the equity markets will deal with the market risk. On the WWF issue, I'm sorry, the world is, is going nuclear. 
I'm on the board of ESCOM in South Africa. South Africa's looking at nuclear. Does not have a problem. China's building, India's building. Uh, the Middle East are quite happy. Canada builds. US, I think, is getting momentum. France, Italy, and Eastern Europe. So, you know, uh, the world is going nuclear. UK can either decide to join it or be out of it. Nikki, nice to see you. <laughs> Um, Sorry, um, it wasn't on this issue, though. Okay. In which case, would you mind if I just take these questions in the front here? Um, we've got can we another five minutes? Yeah. Okay. This actually wasn't about nuclear either. Does that disqualify? It's fine. Or? We've done just nuclear. I wonder what the panel <laughs> thought. It's um, andyhopsableagency.com. I wonder what the panel thought about uh, two things. Is there any chance legislation will force so-called externalities to be factored into the pricing for producers or uh, personal carbon trading, uh, cap and trade for consumers. Lovely. What if I go one more and then can we close it off there? Or Nikki, okay, well, well two more. Yeah. No, just here, 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 here. Hello, Charlie Burgess from The Independent. You were talking earlier about the media as if it's one huge um, business, but of course it isn't. I mean, we at The Independent put environment on the page on the front page day after day the sun will only do it once a year your approach to actually how you get to the get your information over has to be you can't just view it as the media we are all, you know we are fundamentally opposed to probably everything that appears in the daily mail so when but people talk about the media as if it's one business but it isn't the tv companies are all different their, their approaches their you know the, the opinions of the editor of the opinion formers you have to look at it um, micro. Very valid, very valid point. Well taken. Um, Nikki, and then I'll help you wrap up. Nikki Gavron, Deputy Mayor of London. Listening just this point about wedges, um, London's working. We set up something called the C20, and we're working with the 20 or so very large cities in the world, very large cities that are willing to, um, to look at the low-hanging fruit and really reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And we want to include more cities as time goes on. Now, 75% of the world's energy is consumed by cities. And we never sort of start with what you can do in cities. And I'm just interested in the response <coughs> of the panel to this because we're spearheading in London. We've set up a company, nine major utilities and energy companies bid to be our preferred commercial partner. We're doing it with EDF. We're spearheading, introducing decentralised energy into London. Other cities already have it. I mean, you generate it locally. Um, you can use renewables for it, etc., etc. We're also now looking at the kind of energy efficiency that you, you could get if you were as bold as the 1956 government, which came in um, with the Clean Air Act, and in three years flat you know, turn things around. And I'm just, I just want to hear a bit of response around that because I think that might put nuclear a bit into perspective and a few more of these other power stations. Tremendous, Nikki, thank you. Well, briefly, all of you, and maybe you might finish up dealing with, uh, with Nikki's point. David. Well, uh, on, uh, the media is all different, and I did mention that, uh, and mentioned your own paper too. The uh, externalities, I mean, that's the point of, um, uh, you know, any extra... Um, uh, I would support, I think my newspaper and my newspaper supports that within reason you could 
uh, rig the market a little bit in favor of renewables and nuclear to, uh, to interna internalize, I guess as economists would say, the externalities, the, <coughs> the, 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 um, to, or to, to, to accord um, them the, um, you know, the benefit, the low carbon benefit that they, they bring. Uh, and uh, on wedges, uh, uh, this issue of uh, nuclear, and actually I think probably Robert's uh, better to answer this, but I suppose the fear of um, organizations like WWF is that if uh, too much emphasis is put on, um, on nuclear as providing a new potential wedge uh, to, to meet this gap, then the pressure comes off to, um, to, to get to, to fill some of this gap with these wedges with, of reduced demand. I mean, what, Nicky, what you're doing in London is just terrific because uh, you're addressing the point I was trying to make earlier on, that this is urgent and we've got to get on and do things. Uh, and exactly as David says, the, the problem with nuclear is, is longer term and it'll be a distraction. Uh, and I think it's just fantastic that you can lead the way with action today that, that goes down, the renewables route goes down, the, the micro-generation uh, addresses the efficiency uh, uh, issues and all, all power to you and, and spread, the, spread the word ar around other cities and you have our full support in, in doing that because we've got to stop talking, folks. Yeah. Uh, we've actually got to, 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 to take action and the, the way London's set up, you're actually in a position to do that. Well, yes, indeed. I, I think I'll just address Nikki's point because I, I do think it's important. You know, at the beginning I expressed... I commented on our infrastructure and the time it takes to renew it and the fact that we've got to start now. And clearly, cities are responsible for very significant elements of that infrastructure. And that's not just true in the UK. Um, certainly, if you want to do things in China, if you want to do things in other parts of the world, the city mayors and the city authorities are exp extraordinarily um, important um, within this. And, I mean, f just take an example. Most cities are actually responsible for one of the most important natural resources, which we don't actually recognize at the moment, and that is garbage. So, um, urban garbage uh, has a prodigious energy content. We have tended to regard this as a problem in the past, and we've dumped it appallingly, uh, in landfill sites without recognizing that anything that has carbon-hydrogen bonds in, we can extract the energy from. We can gasify it, we can turn it into liquid fuels. And you know, the back of the envelope calculation, which was not done by me but by someone whom I respect, is that if you take the organic component of North American garbage, that is you know, the Sunday newspapers, the grass cuttings, the old shoes, the old tires and what have you, if you take that organic component of North American garbage and turn it into liquids, you have enough liquid to run the North American fleet of vehicles. Now, that's not saying it would be cost-effective to do it, that it would be sensible to do it. But even if it's out by a factor of two, it gives you a feeling for the prodigious resource that is there and which we have regarded as a problem. Bill. Yeah, a couple of points. Um, just picking up the last point um, and, and the, the city issue, I mean, I, I agree with what others have said. Um, I wasn't sure of the uh, implication of um, Nikki's question, whether it was that um, there should be more that government at national level was doing to um, help cities do that or whether we should just let you get on with it. 
Um, my own view is that we, we, we can provide a, a framework in different areas, the planning system, um, the messages we give about energy from waste, which uh, if you read our um, current uh, draft waste strategy, are changing at government level. There's been a nervousness about talking from energy from waste, which is now um, diminishing. Um, the regulation or voluntary agreements with the car industry about um, uh, carbon emissions, all of those things, I think, can help what then is uh, done at the city level, microgeneration, CHP, and so on. Um, uh, but I think it would be um, sort of almost uh, counter to, what, uh, to what's happening in London if we said that uh, governments in some way can be um, overlooking that, driving that. It should be uh, bottom-up. And lastly, on... on personal carbon trading, um, I, um, I don't see that as an immediate prospect, um, but I'm no great expert in, in this. I think um, what we're looking at is instruments like the Energy Efficiency Commitment, the EEC, which at the moment is a, an obligation on energy suppliers, whether that can be used more effectively to um, uh, drive uh, reductions in energy demand at household level um, through using them as intermediaries rather than relying on um, changing behaviour amongst 45 million consumers. Brief observation on the personal trading. It's clearly a movement that's beginning and, and not just here. Uh, there's uh, interesting work being done by the RSA uh, building up a constituency in favour of personal carbon trading. How it begins, whether it's a truly national scheme with some kind of allocation at birth, or whether it's <laughs> voluntary, <laughs> you better watch that process. Um, There's an amazing student movement taking place in the US on campuses, building up, starting from a valuation of the emissions of the university and then working down on how one can offset that. Uh, there are beginnings of a, of a global voluntary carbon markets, very small at the moment, but I feel like it's about to be scaled up substantially because companies are, are beginning to organise themselves to offer carbon offset products at scale. And these offsets are, are producers of real investment money into the alternatives. Um, they don't compensate for other obligations to reduce or other efficiencies, but if you combine, combine efficiencies, reductions, and offsets, you're really doing something interesting. You're producing new capital for investment in, in emission reduction. Now, I don't see any particular edge or end to where that idea could go, especially in the States. You could, you'll see it eventually being connected to simple, everyday things that we do, like the use of credit cards or the way we pay for our bills. And, and finally, just to join everybody else's uh, on the panel's commendations uh, for, for what's happening in London. There's no doubt that if we had a, a, a structured, organised uh, framework for investment in cities, uh, in their buildings, in the, in, in, in the, the reimagination of what a city can be if energy is made a priority, uh, we would find we would, we would live well by reducing greenhouse gases in huge amounts. And uh, there will be, be no suffering attached to that enterprise, I can tell you. Um, and maybe just a pause on, on waste as well, where, where again, we've, it's, a, it's a framing problem. We've simply misunderstood the value of the resource, and the carbon price reveals it. You know, we've got a team upstairs in our carbon markets business just looking at waste. Why? Because things that weren't economic before now are. And, and boring stuff, like composting, 
It's not a very exciting subject on the whole, but believe me, there's money in composting if you have a carbon price, and it's global. So you know, we've got money that's going to Shenzhen to a big landfill site over there. We've taken the methane out. It's not, as, not a first best solution like Ron's, but the methane's been captured off the landfill site and been used to power a local bus fleet, all because of the Kyoto Protocol and the EU emissions trading scheme. Okay, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much, panelists.